there are so many obstacles in our way. When we can look at those obstacles as opportunities and uh, um, and, uh, and ways to grow, um, then I think we completely switch the narrative. But just to never give up. Life is beautifully hard and complicated for all the right reasons. It wouldn't be fun if it wasn't. And uh, never give up. Welcome everyone to another fascinating episode of WorkPod, the Work 2.0 show. Today we have with us Thibaut Manikin. Um, he is the author of Larger Than Yourself. And um, I think very few individuals we got to ha- spend time on on this show who have really walked um, on uh, and, and impacted lives. And, 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 and Thibaut is certainly that story. And um, Thibaut, welcome to the show. Vishal, thank you so much for having me and thank you for this incredible platform and creating this space for others to come in and share an hour with you and share their stories. It's really inspiring. So why don't you uh, walk us through your journey? Like what brought you to becoming larger than yourself? Yeah, it's a it's an, it's an amazing question and I think about it all the time and writing the book actually caused me to dive even deeper into the whole journey. But so I grew up in the city of Baltimore, Maryland here in, uh, um, on the East coast and, um, had a kind of fascinating childhood. I had two really defining experiences that shaped the human being that I would eventually become from very young ages, Vishal. Uh, the first one, I was about 10 years old and I have three younger sisters and my, we finished a family dinner. My parents put my sisters to bed and they kind of asked me if I wanted to stay up late and watch a movie with them, which as a 10-year-old kid was like a huge treat to get to watch a movie with your parents. And so they put on the movie and the movie was called Mississippi Burning. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it takes place in the 1960s during the civil rights era. Um, it's a very powerful, heavy movie full of struggle um, and violence, um, t- talking about the, the, the civil rights movement. And there's a scene somewhere in the movie where there's a group of Ku Klux Klan men that have a mob that's gathered outside of a black church. And the church gets out and the mob attacks the black parishioners. They beat them. They hit them. I think a couple of them are actually killed. And towards the end of that scene, there's this young boy who appears to be my age. And he's kneeling, praying, right, that somebody was going to remove him from this situation. And this guy from the Ku Klux Klan comes up and kicks this young black boy as hard as he possibly can. And Vishal, I just lost it. I sprinted to my room. I buried my head into my pillow. I'm crying uncontrollably. And I remember my mom came in and she sat on the end of the bed and she just kind of like put her hand on my back and just held space. She let me feel whatever feelings I had. She didn't try to get me to explain them or anything because I couldn't at that age. But it was the first time I remember asking myself, how can the color of our skin, something as simple as that, Mm. lead to this scene that I've just witnessed? How is this possible? And it's the first time that I began to ask myself, why are we as human beings so divided? The second really formative experience happened around that same time. And I just kind of remember vaguely my parents putting us in the family station wagon and said, we're going to go do something fun for the day. And we pull over to the side of the road and there are hundreds of cars and we get out on this like big interstate and there's literally thousands of people. And my dad explained that we had come to participate in something called Hands Across America. And it was this attempt to raise awareness and money to fight poverty in America. And the idea was that there was going to be a human chain, millions of people linking hands from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast and across the entire country. And I remember like timidly making my way into that line and holding hands with complete strangers as far as you could see to the left or to the right was this like sea of human beings. And I remember in that moment asking myself, what is this incredible force that has brought so many people, millions of people together at one moment in time for one cause. Like, how is this possible? Right. And this second question started to grow within me, which is what are the creative ways to bridge those divides that exist? So from a very young age, I'm armed with these two questions. Why are we so divided and how can we creatively bridge those divides? So I go through high school. I see more reasons why I need to ask those questions. I go through college. I see even more reasons why I need to ask those questions. And I graduate. And in life, we have two options. We can sit on the sideline and hope that somebody else is going to do the heavy lifting, just watch the news, scroll through our social media accounts, or we can get out and actually do the heavy lifting, be a part of the solution and not the problem, not wait for somebody else to do it. 
So with two friends, we started this international nonprofit organization called Peace Players. This is my first kind of professional experience, right? Um, I've graduated from college. I need to go out in the real world. I'm going to go out and make some money. Um, but my path in the beginning was through a nonprofit organization that we created. And again, it was called Peace Players. And the idea is that we would go to war-torn countries, deeply divided countries, and we would use sports to bridge divides, develop leaders, um, and help to change perceptions. And so, look, Visha, we had no idea what we were doing, right? We were like in our early 20s. We raised about $7,000 from friends and family, which at the time felt like a million dollars, right? Like that was an incredible amount of money then. It was enough to get on a plane to South Africa right after the fall of apartheid. We started dribbling basketballs in black townships and rural areas and white suburbs. And the program really starts to take off. Kids are falling in love with it. Coaches are coming out of the woodworks to participate. And it's really working, right? We're bridging divides and changing perceptions. And we're about run out of that first kind of like, I'll call it like seed money. We're writing letters and we're hustling as hard as we can to get money to keep the program going. And we get a call and it's from Nelson Mandela's foundation. And Nelson Mandela's foundation said that President Mandela is a huge believer in the power of sports to unite. And he wants to become your organization's largest supporter. So we go from like no credibility, right? Mm. To instant credibility with Mandela's money, but more importantly, Mandela's name behind us. So we're, we're invited to the program in South Africa really takes off. We're invited to replicate the model all over the world in the Middle East with Israeli and Palestinian kids, Cyprus, Northern Ireland. You know, fast forward to today is programs in over 20 countries, has worked with over 100,000 kids trained over 2,000 coaches, volunteers, change agents to continue on a daily basis to carry out this incredible mission. So I lived five or six fascinating years in my 20s, living out of a suitcase, bouncing from country to country, kind of, I think, a dream job, right? Setting up the infrastructure at the early stages of this incredible idea. Um, And I knew that my time was coming to an end. I knew that I wanted to pick a city and settle down in. And unexpectedly, I end up back in Baltimore, right? The city that I grew up in. I never thought I'd come back here. And I first day back, I'm going through culture shock. I'm tired. I'm emotionally drained. I don't know what's going to be next for me. And I end up on the corner of Pennsylvania and North Avenue in West Baltimore. Um, To put things into perspective for those of you who aren't from Baltimore, this is the intersection that nine years later in 2015 would be the epicenter of the Freddie Gray uprising in my city. Um, This was the intersection and a part of town that I had been made to believe my entire life that I wouldn't be safe in and that I wasn't welcome in. Um, And I parked my car and like, I've heard this narrative all over the world that like, it won't work. You shouldn't go there. uh, You won't be safe. But if I had listened to that at any point, I would have never been able to participate in the work that we would have done. It would have been the equivalent of sitting on the sidelines and letting society tell me what it was I could or couldn't do. And so I get out of my car and I start walking and I see all the things that society's told me I would see, right? The boarded up homes, vacant buildings, the liquor stores on the corners, the drug dealers, the clients of those drug dealers nodding off at the intersections. And I keep walking because I know there's something else. There's another lesson that I'm learning for and I'm not quite sure what it is yet. And then it hits me about five minutes into my walk through the community. I have two realizations. The first is that our country, especially my city of Baltimore, are more divided than all of these so-called war-torn countries where I've spent so much time and energy, right? We have an inability to have open and honest conversations about our differences and our similarities with people who don't look and feel like us. The second and really powerful realization is that the real estate industry, the control and ownership of land is the most powerful connected industry on the planet. It touches every single one of us every single moment of every single day, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, But even with that power and connectivity, traditionally and historically, the real estate industry has done more to divide us than actually bring us together. And so in this moment, I'm like furious with myself, right? How have I missed both of these things for so long? And I get back to my car and I'm like scribbling down notes about what's coming into my heart. And I call my dad, who's a hero of mine. He had spent some time in real estate, but he had left and gotten into public education and I invite him out for dinner. And I'm like, Dad, let's start a real estate company together. And we started going back and forth. And we agreed that we didn't want to start just a regular real estate company. We wanted to start a company that was going to reimagine the real estate industry. So that buildings were actually used to 
empower communities, unite cities, and help to launch really powerful ideas. And so it's been 15 years since we've been running Seawall. We've done close to or in development of almost half a billion dollars worth of really impactful development, all kind of driven by the end users and the communities that we serve. Um, none of them really being our idea. And it's been, a, it's been an incredible journey. And we'll talk about it throughout this, uh, this episode. But I really believe in our responsibility to reimagine industries, right? Take things the way the world is understood to be one way and flip them completely upside down and look at them in a, in a, in a completely different light. That's that's fascinating. So one thing that um, I was thinking about uh, when when you were when you were talking about this idea of making an impact at that that an early age, and thinking of the world as uh, beyond yourself, and and as you right said, right, larger than yourself. I'm curious. Um, I'm curious to learn. Uh, what was the drive? You are a kid. Uh, everyone around you has very limited dreams when it comes to what they can achieve, or or maybe they are pompous. But no one, as you rightly said, you have two very simple options: um, keep staying on the side and 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 waiting for things to happen, and or or take charge and say I'll make the things happen for me. So I'm curious if you can walk us through that mindset of what what drove you to say, okay, no, uh, there is something bigger that probably I could do rather than something is done for me. So it really comes down to my mom, right? My mom is this amazing woman. She is from France and she moved to America at 18 years old and she met my dad and they were married like a year or two later and they started to have kids. And my mom never felt comfortable in the bubble that existed in Baltimore right? In the world that we grew up in, in the like social network that we had, she never felt comfortable in it. And it was really important to her that us children always understood that the world is a vast and amazing place full of inspiring people and ideas and different ways of looking at things and different ways of approaching opportunities and situations. You know, like, I remember we used to not get a lot of like gifts around the holidays because like our gift would be the gift of travel. Um, so uh, in the summers, we would um, all get on an airplane and we'd fly back to this little village in France where my grandparents live, a little medieval village. There's like 500 people in this town. There's a castle there. And we were just free kids, right? I had cousins from Argentina. I had cousins from France, cousins from America. And like there'd be like 19 of us dropped off on this farm to like fend for ourselves for the entire summer. Um, and my mom was just so good at making sure that we never felt comfortable. And I say that, and I mean, I grew up very in a, in a, very, in a very comfortable way, but she always made sure that we uh, to, to understood that the true learning and growth and opportunity was uh, in our ability to step out of our comfort zones, to step out of our bubbles um, and walk in the shoes of others and ask really important questions and never assume anything for just the taking it at face value. So my mom played this enormous role to, to the point that when I was 12 years old, we had just moved into this new neighborhood and my mom came home one day with a homeless man. Uh, his name was Charlie Barber. Um, she had met him at the shopping center near the home where we had just moved into. It was freezing cold. It was I think in January and uh, she had seen him on a bench and she Kind of went over and talked to him, got his name. And then it was so cold that first night, like temperatures were way below zero. She grabbed blankets and pillows and she went and she brought them to Charlie on the bench and she sat with him as long as she possibly could. She left the blankets and pillows with him. She came back the next day to try to learn a little bit more about him and decided that it was too cold and she brought him home. And Vishal, we never flinched as kids, right? Like it didn't even phase us that this was not the exact path that like we, my mom was meant to like be on and bring us with. We had friends call and say, it's really unsafe to have a 85 year old homeless man living in your home. You've got like little sisters and you've got small kids and it's just like, who would ever do that? Right. And like, it never phased us. It was this, this was, this was my mom at her finest. Um, and she was incredible at, um, 
making sure that she was always caring for people, right? And so she instilled that in us, this desire to use the privilege that we have to take care of others, um, to um, ask hard questions, to never get comfortable in our own bubbles. And as I said in the beginning, to understand that this world is this massive, inspiring place full of creativity and passion. And that great learning and growth comes in our ability to take in as much of it as we human as humanly possible. I think that's um, uh, kudos to her. I think for 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 being such a such an interesting role model for for you and and for hopefully community around her. So um, about um, so now let's go to the uh, the next phase. So you started this this journey of uh, peace players. And um, and it grew. So so from your experience of of building these these communities and that makes an impact that changes things. What have what have what are some of your findings on the recipe of success? Like what are some of the uh, some of the traits that has really helped you build this these ideas into this um, self replicating uh, interesting phenomena? Uh, that that changes the world. So, what 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 were some of what were your findings that has helped you create these large communities? Yeah, it's an amazing question. I talk about it throughout the entire book. Right there are these seven principles that I've observed that help grow an idea and turn it into a powerful and impactful movement. Right, like at the end of the day, we want all of our ideas. We should want all of our ideas to become movements. Right, to become larger than ourselves. And I think the number one thing, and they're all really important, right, is the importance of not claiming sole ownership of an idea, right? Mm -hmm. We as human beings are incredibly driven by ego, right? And I see it time and time again, when like somebody starts to get the beginning stages of an idea, they recuse themselves and they go into these dark rooms and they think of all of the ways that they're going to profit from the idea and make a lot of money from it and uh, take over the world, right? As a result of what they are calling their idea. And my experience is that that usually stands in the way of growth and progress. And that in order for an idea to really take off and grow into a movement, you want everybody that the idea touches to feel the same sense of pride of ownership and authorship in what is getting created. Right. Because then you give the idea these wings. Right. It's not just you as one person pushing it forward, you know, and if we can understand that the ideas that we help to bring the light to life have always existed. They've been on the tip of the universe's tongue waiting to be brought to life. Our role is to like help bring them further into life, but let so many others like feel like they're a part of that, uh, that growth and that trajectory. So, we were very clear when we showed up to South Africa for, as our first country that this idea of sports to unite wasn't ours, right? Mm-hmm. It had always existed. For thousands of years, people have been playing sports together and making incredible friendships, right? We weren't the first to have done this, so it wasn't ours to claim ownership of. We also showed up to South Africa in an incredibly humble way. When we showed up in the communities for the first time where we were going to be coaching, we are like, we want to be clear, we are not here. We don't have the answer to solve hundreds of years of violence and racism and segregation. You know, we know how to dribble a basketball and we know how to set up a little bit of infrastructure, but our role is to be quietly behind the scenes, helping all of you shine. This program in South Africa in particular, and then for later in the Middle East and in Northern Ireland and Cyprus and all the countries, it works when the local communities take complete control and ownership of it, right? And they mold it to whatever is going to meet their needs. It doesn't work when we come in and say, hey, as a couple white Americans right off the plane, we have the answer and the solution to solve all of your problems, right? That would never work. So I think the like first step is to really understand, and I know you've got a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this, that the more people that you touch who you can transfer the pride of ownership and authorship and what is getting created, the more opportunity you have for it to succeed well past your wildest imaginations. And throughout this conversation, I'll give you lots of examples of 
programs and companies and things that we've built over time um, where we've seen that kind of philosophy play in. Interesting. And and what are some of the misconceptions? So when you started this, uh, say, say, let's talk about uh, peace players. You want to expand it. What are some what are some of some of your misconceptions and, and what you did when you were when you were facing them when you were sort of uh, evolving through them if you can walk us through some of those some of those experiences when you say misconceptions what do you mean by that so so basically so you have a plan right and then life hits you right so uh, those moments where you ex- you anticipated things to go place X and they went it into place Y and and if you can walk us through what some of those examples. Yeah. So look, I, I'll give you one example um, and then I'll give you another one as well. The In South Africa, when we showed up, we came in to be an organization that used the sport of basketball to bridge divides between white kids and black kids, primarily. And the program was really succeeding. And as a result of living in South Africa, we were at the heart of the HIV AIDS epidemic, you know? Uh, a third of the population was dying. Visha, when you would go into a rural community, there would be no young adults. It would be all kids and grandparents. That 20 to 40-year-old population had been completely evaporated for the most part. Um, and we saw it. Um, I saw it and was sad, right? Um, but I remember one day we were running one of our basketball programs and one of the, couple of the Parents and teachers came and they pulled us aside and they said, what you guys are doing is incredible, right? You and your coaches have captured, we called our coaches change agents. They were so much more than basketball coaches. You and your change agents um, have captured the attention of our kids, right? We were working with like 12 to 14 year old kids, have captured the attention of our kids in a way that we as parents and teachers are incapable of. Our kids literally won't listen to us anymore. But your coaches are role models and heroes to them. They are bringing them this exciting new sport of basketball, and they are hanging on their every word. And if we are not aware of this, and if we are not careful, all of those kids will die, and the coaches, um, if we're not able to get them proper HIV/AIDS education and awareness. And they asked us to develop a curriculum that, in some creative way, would pass on these important life skills to help make sure that these kids were making good, safe, smart decisions every step of the way. And look like, you know, we thought about it overnight and it wasn't on our radar, right? We have, didn't know the first thing about developing that kind of curriculum. That wasn't why we tra- 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 uh, traveled over an entire ocean to South Africa. It wasn't part of our plan, but the community, right, who had this sense of pride of ownership and authorship in it, had seen that the program could be so much more than we had ever expected it to be. And they came to us and asked us to make a fundamental shift or an addition to what we were originally doing. And so we went all in, right? We invested a ton of resources. We uh, pulled together a team of the smartest minds around developing alternative curriculums on the planet. Harvard uh, University and universities in South Africa. And we formed this incredible like collaboration and developed a world-class curriculum that addressed the, that, the, that our coaches and change agents, these 18 to 22 year old young adults, one would help them understand the risks and, uh, and the things to be aware of, but two, that they would teach this next generation. So, you know, we went from like basketball practice three days a week to just be in basketball to at the end of every practice, you'd sit under a tree and for 20 minutes, there'd be this interactive life skills curriculum that our coaches would deliver and our kids were hanging on every word. You know, we had captured their attention. So look, I think, you know, that was an, uh, the, a lot of people call them like obstacles, right? Um, we would call them opportunities. Um, and again, it's like, if we're not able to deeply listen, then life's going to go by. Right? And we're going to miss so many things. And there's some opportunities. Some opportunities are going to come and they're just not going to be good fits. But again, it goes back to the beginning thing that we talked about is you get two, you got two, two opportunities. Sit on the sidelines and help that someone else, hope someone else does it or you do the heavy lifting yourself. And it was a significant, it was a significant fundamental shift in like why we had showed up in the beginning. But it really defined our program. And then as we went to other countries... They had other challenges outside of HIV AIDS that were relevant to them in that moment that we helped to address through 
through the program and through conversations with the local community. The second piece is, um, you know, this is a little bit of an entrepreneurial journey, but we have to block the words can't and no out of our vocabulary, right? I would tell you that on any given day, I get, if I ask 10, if I ask 10 things of somebody or a group of people, I'm going to get nine no's, right? It's the word that I hear the most, right? Because we dream big, right? We, um, we expect greatness. And a lot of times people can only see what's right in front of them. They're not able to see what something ought to be. And they get stuck in that like small mind mentality. Um, and as entrepreneurs, we have to understand that it's our responsibility to like transcend that can't and that no. Now, look, I want to be clear. Um, first of all, the more people who tell you no, the more important it is that you push harder, right? Um, because they clearly are stuck in the old ways and can't see what something could be, right? And so that's so important. The other thing is that there's real lessons in the no. Um, and the thing that the no has taught me over years is that it becomes critical with all of those no's that we approach bringing that idea or like getting around that one problem that we bring that to life in a really different way um, because it's going to take more than just us muscling our way through something. It's going to take a movement to get past that. It's going to take an army of people to have them be the ones who are pushing against the no and not just you as a tiny individual. So look, there's going to be roadblocks the entire throughout the entire journey. And there are even now that we've had great success, there are roadblocks every day. And they are meant to serve as lessons and meant to make us stronger. So um, <clears throat> I think, um, uh, and thank you for walking us through. I think one of your the HIV example is pretty fascinating. Uh, so uh, when when you expand, and, and, and as you rightly said, that uh, you don't have to be attached to the idea as such, like give ownership to others as well so they can feel that the idea is theirs, right? But when when you are converting an idea into a movement, right? So there's that means a lot more buy-in. Maybe the idea is getting a life of its own, and it's it's getting out of your hand. I think um, I'm I'm curious to understand your perspective on so as things are expanding, and people are coming with this innovative um, use cases or innovative cases that they can work on your idea. How much you as as uh, as um, someone who's trying to create a vision should be attached to the originality or, 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 or the central core of what you, what you want to achieve rather than like, uh, lending your ideas to other, other, other use cases. I'm curious, like, what, has been, what has been your observation uh, when, you, when you were doing that? It's a great question because the more people that get involved, the more cooks there are in the kitchen the more opportunities there are for the idea to deviate from the original concept. And while we want to be good listeners, it really comes down to strong leadership, right? So I think that that is set at the beginning stages of the growth of an idea, right? And again, it's a little bit different if we're the ones pushing the idea forward as our own versus if we're very intentional from the beginning to set the idea with the right core group of people to begin with, right? So in South Africa, we did that. We had the right group of like young adults and the right group of parents and city officials and school teachers and business leaders um, who were at the table and were able to kind of set the North Star for the idea, right? And it happened fast, right? Within the first like three months, we were able to kind of set that North Star. Then it falls back on you as the leader to stay within those parameters, right? Um, and it's not to say that like something like the HIV AIDS opportunity will present itself and you kind of bring it back and you agree that while different, um, it is in total alignment with the reason that the idea was, had, was created to begin with. Um, and it warrants the attention and the energy to help um, incorporate that into the, the new thinking. Um, but there are going to be all sorts of things that pull at you that are going to be no's, right? That are going to deviate and pull you so far away from the original vision and idea that they're going to be detrimental to the growth of what that like core group had originally come up with, right? But it's a, it's an amazing dance and it's an amazing balancing act, right? And as leaders, it's our opportunity to 
I'd say kind of like humbly lead from behind if we've set up the right infrastructure to begin with. And if we've done it really well, rarely do we need to step in and like self-correct and auto-correct. Um, rarely do we have to step in and say, hey, this is completely out of line um, and isn't in service of the reason that we exist to begin with. And it, 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 it really does come down to that, that whoever that leader is um, or that group of leaders um, having that solid North Star and uh, being open to suggestions along the way, but understanding of those suggestions, which one of them are, are really truly in service of the, of the idea to begin with. And I know like we're altruistically now talking in the form of a nonprofit organization, but the same thing, and we'll get into for-profit world too, the same thing applies in the for-profit sector. Interesting. So if, if, if you, if uh, having done this over and over again, so if, if you need to design, say, the anatomy of um, creating an idea into a movement, right? So do you have this weird thought that could means that could, that could mean something and you want to say, build you, you want to build it into a, a movement. I think, so what, what, what are some of, some of the stages and, and have you, have you think it through that, some of the sort of core uh, decision points along the way that one needs to prepare for, or, or is there any recipe to take an idea from a, from an idea to a moment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's really important to say, we can't set out and say, we want to start a movement, right? It'll never work, right? Like, I think we have to start out and saying, I believe so deeply in this idea um, that I really want it to succeed. And in my case, I really want it to change the way the world turns. Right? Like I want the idea to make our planet a better place. Um, and I think if we stay focused on that um, and you follow the principles that I talk about in the book, uh, then you put your idea in a position to perhaps become a movement. Um, but when we start off and say, hey, I want to start a movement, right? Like already we've got the like ego at play, mm. right? Um, mm. it, and we've gotten significantly ahead of ourselves. So I, I want to, I think to answer this question, I want to back up and I want to tell you the story about the first project that we did at Seawall, which is the for-profit real estate company, where we set out to reimagine the industry with using buildings to empower communities and unite cities. Um, and I think this is a good, uh, a good example of an, an explanation for your idea. So um, we knew as a result of the work that my dad had done around education that we wanted to be in service of anybody focused on helping the next generation. Anybody focus on kids. And we had heard from a group of teachers who were new to Baltimore City that they were having a hard time finding an affordable place to live, that they weren't really understanding the city when they were showing up for the first time, and that it was disorienting and that they were then getting burnt out in the classroom, which is one of the hardest professions on the planet. And they asked us if we'd be able to build them a cool, centrally located, funky apartment building at, um, with discounted rents where they could live together, collaborate, cry, laugh, share ideas, and all of those things. Um, and so we loved the idea for it. And we went around and we started to look for little four-unit apartment buildings or small 5,000-square-foot office space with this idea of maybe doing a, a little bit of both. And we kept striking out. We weren't finding the right building. Uh, and eventually a friend of ours called us and said that there was a building on the corner of Howard and 26th street in a neighborhood called, called Remington, which I had been to, but never really heard of by name. Um, and that the building that he was describing was this 150 year old abandoned warehouse building. And you, they used to make tin cans out of it. And the way that he described it is that the building had been vacant for over 30 years, that lots of developers had tried to redevelop it. All of them had run away from the building because uh, the neighborhood just wouldn't support any investment. And so here we come all naive um, and we show up for a tour of the building with the banker and the, um, our friend who had introduced us to the building. And... Vishal, it's a little hard to describe the scene that we showed up to. The In front of us is this looming five-story brick building. Every single window has been boarded up. The roof has trees growing out of it. The 
bricks are falling out of the facade onto the sidewalk, super dangerous. The streets that surrounded it had parked cars with smashed windows. There were vacant homes around it. Uh, it was just, it was like a dark day, right? And a dark building in that moment. And we go and we start the tour and the banker kind of kicks open the door and we step foot and we got flashlights and there's bats and pigeons flying around. Um, three quarters of the building you couldn't really like walk on because it wasn't safe. And the banker's going off on the building. You wouldn't catch me here after dark. This place is terrible. Um, they should just knock this eyesore down. Nothing ever good will come out of this. And the more he's talking, the more I'm aware of this narrative. I'd heard it all over mm. the world, mm. right? This no and can't and it's impossible and you should waste in your time. Um, and the more I heard that, the more I began to fall in love with the building, right? Like if you were able to look past the negative sides of it, you would see the cool old brick, right? That could be like touched up. The massive window openings with glass in them, how cool they would be. The high ceilings, the um, cool old floorboards that some of them could be salvaged, right? You could see the possibility. And so the tour ends and the banker leaves and my dad and I give each other like a huge hug and we're like, yes, you know, like this is the going to be the first, this is going to be our first project. This is the one. But we knew because there was so much opposition to it because no other developer could figure it out because the banker who owned the building wanted nothing to do with it, that we were going to have to bring the idea to life in a completely different way. And this goes to the answer to your question. We would have to build it inside out. And what we mean by that is that we were going to have to make sure that the end users, the community, and the team, and I'll describe the team a little bit later all have the same sense of pride of ownership and authorship and what was going to get created. And so we decide we're going to buy the building. We bring like our trusted advisors, our wives, our accountants down for tours of the building. And every single one of them tells us we're crazy, that you'll mm -hmm. never get your money back on an investment there. You'll never be able to do discounted apartments for teachers. So it's more no's, right? And it's more can'ts, which further reinforce the reason that this had to happen and also further reinforce that we were going to have to bring it to life in a really inclusive way, way past the ability that my dad and I had to do it on our own. So we start with the end users and we reach out to about 10 teachers that we didn't know and we invite them for a tour of the building. And keep in mind, right, we've just done two weeks of tours and everyone's hated the idea. And these teachers show up and my dad, or we don't know any of them, but my dad gets up and he gives this amazing speech that I'll never forget. He says something along the lines of, we have listened to some of your peers and colleagues talk about how hard it is to find great, affordable, collaborative housing in the city of Baltimore. Behind me, pointing to the building, is a blank canvas that we want to help you dream up and turn into the country's first center for educational excellence. Um, we have no idea what we're doing, um, but we're here to listen. And he's like, so who, who wants to go for a tour? And it was like a coach had delivered a speech at halftime when the team was down by 20 and the team's like, the teacher's <laughs> like, let's go. And so we open the same door, we hand out flashlights, there's bats, there's pigeons, there's soiled mattresses and heroin needles and booze bottles throughout. All of the things we had seen with the banker, the difference on this tour is that we weren't the ones leading it, right? The teachers were effortlessly skipping through the building, pointing out the like, cool old windows and the places you could save floor and the neat brick and the courtyard and all of these different things. And they started to talk about we. They started to say, how cool would this be when we, you know, how neat would this apartment be when we? And it was so inspiring to see, right? That like trans transition of power, you know, that inclusion of who the end users were going to be, who were able to latch on to this idea. So the tour finishes, everybody wants to participate. And those 10 teachers ended up being on our team and they spent the next 12 months designing every square inch of their apartments, choosing their own amenities. We even let them pick their own rent right? Based on what they could afford based on their salaries. So the all of a sudden, the end users are fully bought in, right? There's nothing that's going to get in the way of this building not, ha not happening, right? They're fully committed to it.
the next step is to go to the community, right? Equally as important. Mm. And the, we get invited to one of the neighborhood association meetings and we go in and this is a group that has had developers come in for years and say, you are lucky that we're here. We are going to take this eyesore of a building and we are going to turn it into high-end condos or really expensive mm. apartments or fancy shops, right? Without once asking what it is that the community wants out mm. of the space, right? And so, again, my, my dad gets up and um, he says, look, I want to be very clear. We have come in and we intend to be neighbors and not guests. And that... We have been listening to a group of teachers who's really excited about creating the country's first center for educational excellence, which is discounts apart, discount apartments for teachers and collaborative office space for nonprofit organizations serving the public school system. And that they've looked all over town. We've looked all over town. And for some reason, we've ended up in this building, which is in your, in the heart of your community. And this is the one that they are really passionate about, that they're really excited about. Would you like to work with these teachers and these nonprofits to help bring this dream to life? So again, it's the transfer of the ownership and authorship, right? It's not us coming in and telling the community what we're going to give them. It's asking if they want to participate in the early stages of this idea, right? This is way before it was even, even a movement. So now you've got your end users and your community on board. And then the second group is your, your team. And what I mean by team is, who are your guardian angels? Who are those people who have been there and done that, who have failed more times than you'll ever succeed, right? That have been through the trenches, that have seen great success, that have seen great failure. And how do you bring them on and have them participate in the growth of the idea? So the, with the teachers and the community on board, we had designed the building, we had gotten the construction priced. It was a $20 million project which was $19 million more than we thought our first project was going to cost. Um, and the scariest part was that there was a $14 million gap in the financial stack. So because our rents were so low for our teachers and the building was so expensive, we could only borrow $6 million from the bank. So we had $14 million that like we had no idea how we were going to fill that gap. And we invited some friends who had done like similar type of neighborhood development work. And we told them about the ideas that the teachers in the community had and that told them, explained to them how, how we were stuck. It was amazing. And they started telling us about these different tax credit financing programs that could leverage in some free sources of capital and, and equity and uh, historic tax credits and new market tax credits and all these amazing things. We had no idea. Um, and before we knew it, by the like end of that first week after that meeting, the phone was ringing off the hook of like banks and investors that wanted to participate, but not participate so they could make a bunch of money, participate because they believe so deeply in the importance of creating a building in a city that was going to roll out the red carpet for the people doing the most important work in our cities. Anybody focused on kids and education. And before you knew it, Vishal, like we closed financing miraculously. Um, nine months before we finished construction, we had leased a hundred percent of the building. By the time we finished, there was a waiting list of over 300 teachers waiting to get in. Um, and we had never spent a dollar on marketing or advertising, right? What, what had happened was that it, from the very beginning, we had been intentional about inclusively growing the idea and making sure that the end users, the community and the team were the ones driving this forward the same way that we were. My guess is that those teachers got left the meetings and were like, you're never going to believe this. This crazy developer like let us choose our own rents and designed our own apartments and they're never going to pull it off. But if they do, like you got to get in. And the word went viral, right? Because so many people believed in it. So again, you can't set out to create a movement. And, and, and to mm -hmm. be clear, we finished the one. We got invited to do another one just down the road. And then we got invited to do them all over the country right? Um, create more of these centers for educational excellence. And so to get back to your original question, you can't start off by saying, I want to build a movement. You have to bring an idea to life, um, understand that it's not your own, that you should be blessed, feel blessed and honored to work on it. And that the more people who believe that the idea, they really feel it in their heart, that the idea is also theirs, 
the more opportunity you give that idea to maybe one day grow into an, a powerful and impactful movement. I think, uh, and thank you for walking us through that. I think uh, one of the things that really stood out uh, in what you're suggesting is, so many times we burden ourselves that we have to know all the answers, right? Many times the answer is not within us. We just have to get that, like talk to people. And maybe the answer come from outside many times. So I think having that that, that open mindset that you can explore beyond you it's it's fascinating and thank you for walking us through that let's let's tease a bit on on the mindset of uh, of of basically this this ideology of it right say i'm i'm a worker in an organization right so obviously um i'm trained to appreciate the culture i'm trained to appreciate the status quo and if 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 you think what culture is it's primarily understanding all the nos and 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 working around it to to get yourself get anything done so now like considering can I, can, I, can I can I stop you for a second yes yes absolutely why is that the culture like who wants to work someplace where the culture is a no and the culture is a box like if you come to seawall here right and you meet all the people that work here like the concept of a box does not exist right like you are not a valued teammate if you're not thinking outside of it if you're not pushing the envelope on what's possible if you are not reimagining some component of it right so i mean i think if like if i worked at some place where the culture was a no i'd want to leave there immediately um i think that we've got to as leaders of organizations we have to create these cultures where ingenuity and creativity are rewarded and important and critical to the growth and success of what we're doing right no i, I think that that's a, that's a fascinating point so say so you're a leader right so now if if you think about say linemen in your organization right so say anyone is set out to set up a building and building has to follow a code it has to follow a set of rules right so there is not too much room for innovation not too much room for creativity to go beyond what you want to achieve now if if you are one of one of those linemen listening to this conversation right and who is inundated with this idea of no you cannot be too creative or you cannot be do this and 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 you really want to like i'm curious how do you as a leader think about those those individuals uh how would they stay creative and and yet follow the status quo so look at an organization's an incredible thing um done well and it's heart it's an enormous family mm-hmm. and families are complicated right mm-hmm. right speaking from experience uh, amazing and complicated our opportunity right uh is to understand that all kinds of different people need to exist within an ecosystem. So we have people here at Seawall that like can't think outside of the box and I'm going to generalize. But we have this incredible team of accountants. And I love the fact that they are in a box and that like they dot every i and cross every t and that they are critical to I'm going to say me because we have, we have other creative people too, but like my ability to dream huge, mm. you know, um, it's important that like we understand that we need each other, the in the box thinkers and the out of the box thinkers, right? The, I, with all my heart, love those people that can think in, inside the box because I'm incapable of doing it. And if like mm. we had an organization of all outside the box thinkers, we'd have been out of business a long time ago, mm. right? And the in-the-box thinkers love the fact that they've got a lot of like creative people that they've surrounded themselves with that are going to push innovation um, and challenge the status quo and reimagine things. And it's that marriage of the two, right? It's not everybody that needs to innovate, um, mm. but the line worker, as you described, right? The um, in-the-box thinker needs to understand their role and the importance of what they do on a daily basis. Um, that they like the idea that the organization is being creative and pushing the envelope on what's possible. Um, they like the idea that they're helping to make it work in a way that makes financial sense and that like doesn't derail the company. 
Um, but aligning those two things, I think, is the most important piece. Um, so that, I mean, you can come spend a day at any of our organizations that we run here. Uh, uh, and I'm positive that you're going to get that same vibe from everybody, whether they're in the box on the line or they're like out in the community thinking, thinking big and dreaming, dream, dreaming create, creatively. I think it comes down to love, right? It is a word that we have been trained to use sparingly. It is growing up as a teenager, uh, we believed that, that we called love the L-bomb, right? It was this like atomic thing that if you used, it was like you were somewhat of an outcast, right? And I've had a fundamental shift in that. I think love drives like everything that we do. And I think that when the people that we're blessed enough to work with, the in-the-box thinkers and the out-of-box thinkers and everybody in between all feel loved and appreciated and connected and driven towards the same end goal, when those purposes are completely aligned, it really doesn't matter what you do within the organization. Um, you're all kind of moving forward in the same direction. Awesome. So um, let, let's spend a few minutes on the book. Um, why write this book? So um, I have been blessed to work all over the world and I do a lot of sp public speaking and Every time that I'd get off the stage after any kind of speech, I'd have all of these people come and approach me and ask me to explain more about these principles that I have been talking to you about today. Um, because to them, it felt like a foreign language. It wasn't a way of addressing business that they were used to. It felt somewhat out of control, as I think you alluded to. And so, you know, they'd ask me these questions, fascinated. They were curious. And so I'd go home and I'd take notes and the notes turned into paragraphs and the paragraphs turned into chapters. And then like one day I was like, you know what? Like this, there's a book here, right? And um, I had seen and learned too much throughout my life to not at least attempt to pass some of those lessons off to as many people as I could. And for me, the book was the format to do that, you know, to be able to translate and pass these incredible life lessons that I've learned in the trenches off to as many people as I can possibly touch. And it's been a really fascinating process, right? I, when I first started, I had a friend who had written a book. He said, Hey, Tebow, this is going to take you five years. And I was like, you're crazy. Like nothing <laughs> takes me, nothing takes me five years. Right. And uh, he was like, no, this is going to, this is going to take you every bit of five years. And I, I said, I'd be done in like six months. And to the day, Vishal, it took five years. You know, um, it is a long process. It is a vulnerable process. The, the first time I wrote it, another friend had read it and basically ripped it up and said, this is so superficial. You haven't let anybody into your heart um, and you've barely scratched the surface. Go back, dig into who you are as a human being uh, and let that shine throughout the entire book. And then maybe it's something worth sharing. And so, you know, that was a, um, I'm a, I'm not, I'm not a very, uh, I'm a little bit more of an introverted person. Um, and that was a complicated process for me, but a really eye opening one as I kind of dove into this exploration of like what makes me tick and what are, what are the important lessons that I wanted to, to, to share along the way. I think that, um, uh, it sounds like you've read some of it, but I, I really wrote it in a way where it's just a series of stories, mm. right? Like it's, not this like academic lecture of this is how you do this. It's, I don't know, 21 or 22 chapters. And every chapter is a different story of somewhere else in the world mm -hmm. where like I pass on these aha moments, right? Where like you as a reader, you may or may not get the point that I'm trying to make. You might just mm -hmm. read a beautiful story. But I think if you weave them all together in each one of the sections emerges every one of these principles that I've felt so important as we bring ideas to life and and who is the who is the um, reader uh, ideal reader when you when when you when you wrote this book you envisioned uh, who will be ideal suited to read this book so it used to drive me crazy when people ask that because i'm like everyone's going to read it you know <laughs> um, and uh, you know the publisher and your team always help to you to understand that you really do have to have a kind of a target demographic and I think that's been emerging, but I th think the group that it's going to resonate the most with, I think it's going to, I mean, it's been out for two or three weeks now. Um, you know, my parents' generation has loved it. 
my generation has loved it. And I think the group that's really picking it up and running with it is this next generation of our future leaders, right? The like college grad um, that wants to live a life of purpose, um, but also wants to feel fulfilled every day, also wants to make a living in the process um, and wants to kind of combine those two things into one. Um, and even the college uh, senior and the college graduate uh, in one of the graduate master's programs, the, the book talks that I've done in universities across the country now have been really well received. I think we've got a younger generation now um, that isn't going to go through the motions, that isn't going to settle for the status quo, especially as a result of this pandemic where we are all forced to kind of question what we do every day, right? In work, we will spend more time in work in our lives than we will spend with our families. And there is no excuse to have a day go by where you're not like completely passionate and jazzed and excited about what you're doing, right? And I think that the messages in the book help people understand that. And this next generation of future leaders and workers is the one that it's really resonating with. Uh, thank you for walking us through that. So um, I think um, now let's get to the slightly the fun part of the conversation. We call it rapid fire. So basically, um, uh, I'll say a word and then you tell me whatever comes to your mind. And then if you want to elaborate more, you more than welcome to do that. Uh, should we start that? Yeah, I'm nervous, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the word uh, is diversity. I think of diversity as a critical component to creativity. And it's something that we struggled with originally and weren't intentional enough about. And as a result of that, it reflected in our work. As we've become incredibly aware and intentional about it, we make sure that every decision that we make comes from a very diverse group of individuals and point of views. When we're so used to making decisions within our comfort zones with people who look and feel like us, and that's a disservice to the uh, opportunity for an idea to grow. As we and as I have made fundamental shifts in that, and our ability to make sure that every single decision um, is supported and debated and executed on through with incredible lens on diversity has translated into probably some of the most significant work that we're doing today. Um, equity. Yeah. I mean, equity has been a big part of the conversation too. Uh, there's a, there's a big part of the book that talks about privilege, right? And I talked about this in the beginning of, our role in understanding that privilege and what we're going to do with it. And especially in a system like real estate that has, is entwined with so much racism to begin with mm. um, and systematic racism that goes back hundreds of years, um, creating an equitable playing field and having equity be at the core of a lot of the decisions that we are making is also incredibly important and something that we're really focused on. Uh, future of work. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I think the like, default answer is all around technology. I'm a huge believer in human beings. Um, and I think the pandemic has showed us what we've lost in our... I mean, I already think that we're too divided, right? Um, and the pandemic has showed us has highlighted that division more than we've ever seen before. Um, and we're so reliant on technology. And I think the future of work is us being able to, to reconnect as, as human beings. Um, and I have this dream that we are going to go back to the old way of doing businesses, that, like doing business like at the end of a meeting when we've been really touched by somebody rather than shooting them a text message or pinging them on Instagram, we're going to write them a handwritten note you know, it's something my grandfather did, it's something my dad did, it's something I do. I hope it's something my kids do. Um, that uh, that uh, we're, we're, uh, we're not going to settle for the ease of a Zoom call. 
Um, you're, you're running podcasts now. You've been doing them for two and a half years. I'm running podcasts as well. The idea of doing it virtually back in the day didn't exist, right? Mm. If the pandemic hadn't happened, where are you right now? Where are you? Boston. Yeah. I would have gone up to Boston and sat in a yeah. room with you. Right. Um, and we would have connected on a completely different level than we're connecting on right now. So while technology is important, it'll move things forward. I hope that there's a shift in the workplace back towards human connection. Fair point. Um, culture. Yeah, look, culture is uh, at, at the heart of it's cultures like our glue, right? It's the thing that holds us as different people together. You know, if you were to come visit Seawall, we've got this incredible culture and we've got a pr pretty di diverse group of people that work here, um, all from different racial, socioeconomic and political backgrounds. Um, but we're all so deeply connected around the quest to fulfill our purpose um, as a result of the culture that's been set here that I think that we do a good job of staying aligned and in tune with that. Disruption. Yeah, the word that comes to my mind is necessary, right? Um, I think that we have to disrupt things. I, I, I use the word reimagine more than I use the word disrupt. But at the end of the day, you're, you're doing the same thing, right? You're taking something the way that, that has worked one way for the world um, and you're doing your best to change it. Uh, thank you for that. I think that uh, concludes this section. Now, um, we are the last segment. And, and basically, I want to spend a few minutes on your personal journey. So uh, we ask all, um, all of our guests to share some qualities or some traits that has really helped them be what they are today. What, what are some of those qualities that has shaped you the way you are today? Um, I think I understand the question, but look, I'm, um, I'm the first to admit when I'm wrong, you know, and I'm wrong a lot. And uh, I will, anytime I'm wrong, and it usually takes me a day to figure it out, but like I'm going back to that person or that group and apologizing if I, if I need to, um, thanking them for helping me to see something in a different light. Um, and owning the fact that, uh, that I had missed something or, or was wrong about it. Um, I think humility is, is, is really important. You know, we've talked a couple times about, about ego here. Um, and I think our ability to, geez, not block it out entirely because that's unhealthy. Um, but make it so that we don't need to be front and center around everything that we do is also really important. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think that, that, that works. So um, your favorite reads. So, so we ask all of our guests to, to, to talk about some of the readings that has really shaped uh, the way they, they are or, or some, something from your current list that you are reading. So I've got a lot of favorite books, right? One of them is uh, Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. I'm not <laughs> sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, it's, it was just I, like I read it during my travels um, and I completely identified with the boy mm. uh, in it. And it was just, it was, an, it was a really eye-opening book that grounded me in my heart. Um, and I think that finding and following our hearts is more important than following our minds mm. because our bodies intuitively know what's right and wrong. And our minds block that out. And the alchemist taught me to always follow my heart. There's an amazing book by the creator of Visa, a guy named D. Hawk. It's called One From Many. And it's funny because you never really hear of Visa, the company. Mm. But I think, it's the, I think it's the largest company on the planet, uh, transacts more than any other organization. I don't know how many trillions and trillions of dollars flow through it. But you never really hear about it. Hmm. You know, you hear about Apple and you hear about Facebook and Tesla, but you never really know how you got this little plastic thing in your wallet and the infrastructure behind it. And this guy, D. Hawk, who was the creator of it and his journey 
to have it be this organic, free-flowing monetary system is fascinating. Um, and you know, your question in the beginning or towards the middle of how do we kind of control the chaos with so many mm. factors pulling at us? Mm. His journey and the creation of visas really speaks to to that. Awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Now, last, last but not least, so if you want something that our listeners and viewers to take away from this conversation, what would that be? What would be your parting thought? I, t- I tell everybody to never give up. You know, I tell everybody that there are so many obstacles in our way when we can look at those obstacles as opportunities and, uh, um, and, uh, and ways to grow. Um, then I think we completely switch the narrative, but just to never give up. Life is beautifully hard and complicated for all the right reasons. It wouldn't be fun if it wasn't. And, uh, Never give up. Uh, with that, um, Tibo, thank you so much uh, for, number one, all you are doing uh, to support the communities around you and making the world better. Uh, and, and thank you for joining us on the show. And you're always welcome back on the podcast. And, and, and by the way, I'm curious, what's next for the book? Yeah, so look, it came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I'm on the like book tour, right? Um, uh, there's... Uh, we're hitting a lot of like colleges and universities with been fun, doing a lot of um, work with big corporations and stuff like that. And just like anything else, right? I've tried to build it in a really inclusive way and we'll see what the universe has in store for it, how far and wide it goes and feel blessed to get to spend this kind of time with somebody like you that, that hadn't met and has created this platform for others to share their dreams. Pleasure is all mine. And with that, thank you so much, uh, Tibo, and good luck. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you.